Welcome to Just Do It HQ, a podcast from Uninterrupted celebrating the 30-year anniversary of those three words. As you've heard on the show, this podcast features in-depth conversations with Nike's top athletes. We've talked with Russell Wilson, Laurie Hernandez, and Gronk, and a whole lot of other elite athletes. They told us about their smart habits, their crazy dreams, and what Just Do It means to them. I'm your host, Denise Jones, here at Just Do It HQ in Los Angeles. I'm a competitive person. Everything feels like a race to me. Lucky for me, I love races. As a kid, I was on the swim team, and at the start of every swim race, you have to hold your breath and swim as long as you could without coming up for air. So if you want any chance of winning, you can't be nervous at the start. You gotta breathe without panicking. I'm glad I was in a lot of races as a kid. Learning to breathe and focus when things got tough has made a big difference in my life, especially because I still feel like I'm racing every single day. Today, we're gonna talk to a pair of runners who have kept their calm and won a lot of very big races. In his prime, our first guest was the fastest man on earth. For the listeners that don't know you or aren't familiar, how would you introduce yourself? Michael. That's a good way. <laughs> <laughs> but if you ask me to elaborate and, and give a little background, um, I am a four-time Olympic gold medalist, uh, eight-time world champion, uh, former world record holder. I could go on. The Michael Johnson, the man with the golden shoes. He joined us here at Just Do It HQ only 10 days after he moved to Los Angeles. But before he was an Olympic champion, he was a little brother. I'm the youngest of five and I'm, I'm significantly younger. Um, they were always outside. I lived in a neighborhood in Dallas, Texas where, you know, back in the 70s, you walked outside and kids were just playing sports. That's just, you know, what was happening. It was normal, it was natural. And all of my, my, my brothers and sisters, they all played sports. And so I was always tagging along with them. So I was always playing with older kids. And, you know, and there was five of us. I mean, so we make a basketball team easily. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, despite the fact that I was younger, you know, my brother and my sisters were always like, you got to play. You got to play up. I mean, you can't let us down. And I mean, and they would they pushed me. And I think that that experience taught me you know, to really reach high and aim high and I've got to play above and, and also to not have any excuses. Um, you know, nobody was kind of letting me off the hook because I was younger. So that was a really, really good experience. Um, we're all still very close to this day and uh, they are my best friends. So you grew up with them playing team sports and, and basketball example is perfect because you're right, it's a five on five. But then when you started racing, it was more individual, right? Your own lane. Yeah, you know, again, you know, just growing up in that neighborhood, we played team sports, but we also played a lot of individual sports, and there was always a race. I mean, even if you were within a team sport and somebody got burned, like, you know, or got scored on, you know, you're going to get somebody saying, yeah, but I'm faster than you. Yeah. Okay, well, let's race. And there was just always races. And, um, and there was just something about running always even if i wasn't racing just running that i always enjoyed it just gave me an amazing feeling and i didn't know it at the time but it was just natural for me michael won a lot of races on the court at the park and in the street but he eventually found himself on a track 
and the results were an indication of things to come. Uh, my first organized race, I was 10 years old, and uh, my sister and I both were entered into these races. I think it was a 100-yard dash race, and um, my sister almost won her race. She went before me, and, um, and then I was next up, and then I won my race, and, and it was just an amazing feeling. Michael won a lot of organized races. Eventually, he set his sights on the biggest prize. I knew I wanted to compete in the Olympics when I watched the Olympic Games on TV in 1984. I was still, um, I was in high school at that point. I never thought that I was going to become a professional athlete. Yeah, I was fast. I was fast in my neighborhood. I was fast in my high school, you know, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to the Olympics. I didn't know anybody that had ever become, nobody from my neighborhood had ever become a professional athlete or an Olympic athlete or a celebrity or any of that. My parents were more focused on telling me and my brothers and sisters and teaching us how we can get ahead in life and how we can get out of the neighborhood that we grew up in and how we can do better for ourselves. And that's what I was focused on. And I wanted that. So it wasn't until um, I was inspired by watching the 1984 Los Angeles Olympics um, that I really thought I'd like to do that. Michael set his sights on a lofty goal and he had a long road ahead of him. Step one running in college, and finding a way to pay for it too. All of my brothers and sisters had come before me, all went to college, graduated from college. My parents didn't pay for that because they didn't have the money to pay for that. My parents said, hey, you got to figure out how to go to college. So go get a job or whatever, but you got to go. And it was going to be no different for me. Of course. So I was focused on trying to figure out, yeah, how am I going to go? You know, how am I going to go to college? And um, and it was my junior year of high school, I started getting scholarship offers from, uh, from colleges and universities, and I knew that now I don't have to worry about that anymore. Uh, but also, that was the opportunity for me. I'm going to be able to get to the next level. The next level of my sport is running NCAA track and field. And I was very excited about that. And, and once I got there, I started to realize that I really can actually get to the Olympic Games because... I, it was, I, I was able to prove that to myself because I was running the times that were consistent with what the athletes who were going to the Olympic Games was running. Prior to that, it would have been just a dream, and I'm not much of a dreamer. In college, Michael met someone who would become one of the most important people in his life. My coach, Clyde Hart, um, at Baylor University, who recruited me to Baylor, and I made the decision to go to Baylor. He became my coach, and that was the only coach I ever had. How was that relationship early on? It was, uh, I, I knew immediately that I was in the right place. So much so that, again, I, he was my coach for my four years of university, and he was my coach for the 10 years of my professional career. I never had another coach. What was it about him? He was a great teacher, an amazing teacher. Um, he gets to understand athletes personally and how they are, motivated how how to motivate that athlete and that every athlete's not motivated in the same way one of the most amazing things i think he ever did uh, that just showed me just an amazing coaching skill and i have looked for this in every coach i've ever hired um is he understood how to get me to come to my own conclusions and that that was going to be more effective than him telling me you need to do this and one of the most amazing examples of that was you know, for the first three years of my college career I showed great potential, but I was injured every single year. And I knew that if I continue to have these injuries, I'm never going to get to my dream of being an Olympic professional sprinter. So before my senior year um, started, I called a meeting with my coach. I went into his office and I said, Coach, look, 
you got to help me. Something's got to give here. These injuries are going to, you know, prevent me from ever having my professional career. And um, he said, Michael, you know, I believe in you. I believe in your potential and your talent. I want the best for you. I'll do anything I can for you. And he said, why don't we both do this? Let's go away, think about what we can do next year to prevent you from getting injured. Think about all of the things we can do. You think about it from an athlete perspective. I'll think about it from a coach perspective. And then he ended with this. He said, oh, and let's think about, you know, also as coach and as athlete, anything that we haven't been doing that we could be doing. Okay, cool, coach. All right, walk out of the office, walking back across campus. I didn't get back to my apartment before I realized exactly what he was talking about. I hated stretching and I hated lifting weights and I had never done it. I, was, I had spent three years trying to become the first athlete to ever become a world-class sprinter without lifting weights and, and stretching. stretching. Yeah. Michael fell in line with conventional wisdom, started stretching, lifting weights, and the rest is history. But he didn't do everything conventionally. In particular, Michael Johnson, yes, the fastest man on earth, had funny running form. He ran upright and took short steps with a faster stride rate. Other sprinters get compared to cheetahs or gazelles. Michael ran more like a road runner. I asked him about it. So when I first started um, running when I was a kid, I always ran different. It was different than everybody else. Kids used to make fun of me. You ran funny. I would make fun back, say you ran slow because I was always faster than them. Right, good comeback. So um, when I was being recruited um, by, you know, College coaches from around the country, they all said, you're going to have to change your running style if you ever want to really reach your full potential. The only coach that didn't, there was a few, but one of the ones who didn't, most said, you got to change your running style. One of the ones who didn't was Clyde Hart, my coach. Later, uh, I asked him, why did you never try to change my running style? And he said, because I didn't see anything wrong with it. Um, and the one thing you do is when you look at an athlete, you assess whether or not they're efficient or not. If they're not efficient, then you gotta change some things. But if they're running efficiently, then regardless of whether it looks different from everyone else or whether it looks different, if it's efficient, you don't try to change it. Long story short, turns out, part of the reason I was able to become the fastest man in the world is because my technique and my style is much more efficient than everyone else's. There's no wasted motion, and I produce more power into the ground, which translates into speed. I produce more power than most people. When did you realize that? Uh, in 1993, when we had a study commissioned um, and my style was analyzed by the U.S. Olympic Committee. And people said, because I ran much more upright, that my stride length was shorter, so I wasn't covering as much ground. I was covering just as much ground as everybody else, you know, right within the average, but producing more force. And obviously running faster. Right. Which is what it's all about at the end of the day in my sport. Michael took his form and his upbringing and his coach and ran right up to the mountaintop. In the years leading up to the 1996 Olympics, Michael became the fastest sprinter in both the 200 meters and the 400 meters. No male track athlete had won both events at a major meet in a hundred years. But Michael pulled it off at the 1995 World Championships. And he was aiming to become the first person to accomplish the 200-400 double at the Olympics. I was the first sprinter at a world-class level to combine the 200 and 400, which while they're both sprints are very different events, you have to train for them very differently. Um, but I had already, at that point, I had won world championships in both of those. 
Um, I've been ranked number one in the world in both of them for many years. The problem with trying to run them both at the Olympic Games is the schedule and the amount of races because you had, at that time, three elimination rounds to get to the final in each race. So that's eight races total if you get to the final. And the problem with the, the 400 meters was first, the 200 meters was last. So after four rounds of the 400 meters, I'm going to now go into the 200 meters and most of my competitors there are going to have only run the 100 meters. So I'm going to have severe fatigue by the time I get to the 200 meter final. So, you know, but my coach and I knew that and, and we, we developed a training program over the year leading up that would allow me to be at my best by that 200, by that eighth race and final race. The competition was stiff, um, but, you know, this is the Olympic Games. As an individual athlete in an Olympic sport where you know that, you know, the gun goes off, 19 seconds later, you're going to be Olympic champion or not. That means preparation is everything. I talked about preparation earlier. With I learned father. that when I was a young kid. So this was all about preparation. Would you say that because it was your, your eighth and final race, was that your hardest uh, event? Yes, absolutely. Because the competition was stiffer there. 200 meters physically is obviously not as hard as the 400 meters. Right. 400 meters is a very difficult race physically. Yeah. But the competition is stiffer, was, was stiffer for me in the 200 meters. And the 200 meters is a much more technical race. You're talking about a race that takes 19 seconds versus the 400 meters, which takes 43 seconds. There's time to make some adjustments in the 400 meters. There's time. There's a little bit more room for margin for error. The 200 meters... You've got to get the technique. You've got to get the race strategy absolutely right because you can't make any adjustments in that race. So you go into the race with a race strategy. This is what I need to do. I need to be at this place at this time and all of those things. If that doesn't go right, there's very room, little room for you to make any changes. So that race is, is much more difficult from that perspective. Michael won that race and demolished the world record, a record that he already held. He ran the 200 meters in 19.32 seconds. I broke the world record by a tremendous amount. People don't break world records by four-tenths of a second, which is what I did, um, which was significant. I knew that I could run that fast. I just didn't think that it was going to happen in the eighth race you know, over six days. I didn't think that it would happen at that point. So I was a little bit shocked that I actually was able to do it there at that particular time. There are two things about that race that stick in the minds of fans all these years. The world record and Michael's footwear. I made the brilliant decision to actually do all of this in front of the world in gold shoes. You heard him. Gold shoes. Had that not worked <laughs> out, you know, and I got a silver medal instead of gold, we probably wouldn't be sitting here right here talking about this today. Let me tell you, the gold shoes was very bold. Yeah, it was. Very bold. It was. Yeah, no, that was fun. It was more than fun. I mean, it was the highlight of my career because I was able to make history, win the Olympic championship in, at, at home. So this was the Olympics in Atlanta. Yeah. Um, so in America, most athletes in track and field will never get the opportunity to participate in an Olympics in their own country. The timing just happened to be right for me. So I was able to make my historic moment as an Olympic athlete representing the U.S., in the U.S. That was a phenomenal experience. I mean, just, yeah, that was a pinnacle for me. Michael would win one more Olympic gold medal four years later in the 400 meters. And then he retired from racing earlier than he had to. 
track and field is a very, very difficult sport to sustain a career in and to be consistent and to, to have longevity in and to keep winning. It's very difficult. And, um, and the training is very difficult. First year I was into the sport, I made history becoming the first person to be ranked number one in the world in the 200 and 400 meters. And I promised myself then I'm going to retire out of this sport ranked number one. And I just knew that if I continued, I'd be in danger of not doing that. And also, um, every championship I went to, I won a gold. I won gold. I don't have any silver, any bronze. I'm sure those are perfectly good medals. I just don't have any. And they wouldn't match well with gold shoes. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. So I, I didn't want to. I didn't want to put my record in danger, and I knew just I wouldn't be as motivated. So, so I retired early. And just like in his racing career. Michael has also pulled off being successful and making a difference ever since. You know, probably my most important work is, um, is founding Michael Johnson Performance, uh, which I started 12 years ago. We provide training and, uh, and support services to the sports industry. We train professional athletes. We are consulting and education division where we certify coaches and consult with professional sports teams and helping them develop better training programs and um, recovery and regeneration, nutrition programs, talent identification programs. Um, we have training programs for youth and ath uh, developing athletes as well across all different sports, you know, focusing on um, athletic development, speed, strength, power, agility. Um, that's, you know, we employ over 100, you know, uh, people, and that's, I'm very proud of that, that, um, you know, over 100 different people are able to go and feed their families because of a company I started. You know, I never thought that that would, never never dreamed that that would be the case, and it is, and I'm very proud of that. And we're inspiring young people to stay involved in sport. And so that's probably my most important accomplishment after my career, and I'm very proud of it. And he should be. Michael gives back to the community all the time. Before this interview, he was working with some youth here at Just Do It HQ. So it gives you a very powerful voice. And when you can use that to help, you know, inspire a young kid, you know, who may take that lesson learned or that inspiration uh, from that experience and interacting with you, you know, inspire them to be the best that they can be and realize their dream. You know, that's rewarding. And Michael thinks that the Just Do It HQ is a good place to work on becoming the best you can be. But unlike most of our guests, his reason wasn't all about the training options at our pop-up headquarters. He also really likes the name. If you think back to, you know, just do it, and, and I can because I'm old enough to, and I remember when that campaign first started, you know, it, 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 it resonated with people. You know, just do it. You can dream about it, talk about it, you know, but, you know, you got to get out there and do it. And I think that because of that, I think that's always been special. It's just as... Um, as important a message today as it was 30 years ago. Well, Michael Johnson, you are more than an athlete. You are like the epitome of, of what inspiration is all about. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Next up, we spoke with another sprinter with a lot of Olympic hardware. I'm Sonia Richards-Ross, four-time Olympic gold medalist and American record holder in track and field. Um, and I competed professionally for 13 years, so I was really fortunate to have a really long career and get to do what I love to do for a very long time. Um, now I define myself as a wife and a mother. Super excited. I have a newborn that's 11 months old. My best friend told me I can't call him a newborn anymore, but he's going to be my newborn forever. <laughs> so I'm a mom and a wife and an entrepreneur. And we were excited to have her. 
We started our conversation talking about Sanya's introduction to racing. When did you know that you were fast? Well, I knew I was fast pretty early on. So I was born in Jamaica. I always say I feel like I kind of got the best of both worlds because track and field is, I wouldn't even say arguably, I'd say it's the number one sport in Jamaica. Soccer is pretty close, but we have such a rich history in track and field that I feel like it was all around me. And so when I was seven, I competed in our sports day, which is where you go for, you know, you race and you throw stuff, all this stuff. And I ran against the girls and the boys. I beat everybody like by a mile. And wow. so my the track coach was like, yep, you're joining the track team. And, you know, I had a lot of success really early on. I was winning races at seven, eight, nine. Um, and you have to imagine like in Jamaica, these meets are like thousands of people in the stadium. Like it's serious. Like prep, it was prep school champs. And I was running in front of probably more people than I ran in sometimes when I was older um, in some of the meets in America because Jamaicans just love it so much. So I knew early on that track was a great passion of mine and that I was actually pretty good at it too. Pretty good is an understatement. Sonia kept winning races in Jamaica and credits her home country with much of her athletic success. Having the foundation that I had in Jamaica, I knew how much I loved the sport, um, but I learned how to be disciplined, how to work hard. And I also had lots of heroes around me. Uh, when I was growing up, Merlene Adi was one of the best sprinters, um, and she'll always go down in history as one of the greatest sprinters of all time. And so I knew what I wanted to be and where I wanted to go. And so when I came to the United States, I just continued right on that path. And yeah, I was 12 when my family migrated, my sister 11. Um, you know, my parents really made the move for my sister and I. And of course, I was showing promise in track and field, but they didn't do it just for that. They wanted me to be able, and my sister, to do whatever we wanted to do. And they knew having a college education would help us to do that. Sonia's parents made the decision to move for their kids. And Sonia made the most of it. I remember at my middle school, I guess it was like the county championships. I won the 100, 200, 400, 800 long jump. I did like everything. It was the first time our team won a county title ever in the history of the school. And then I went on to a phenomenal high school, um, St. Thomas Aquinas High, and we won four state championships. So yeah, I just kind of kept it going. As a kid, Sonia knew where she wanted her career to go. Um, I, my craziest dream, I think at that time, was to be an Olympic champion. Um, my dreams have changed, obviously, but... I remember my dad, when I was just nine, saying, you're a world beater, you're a world beater. And my mom was like, she's nine, just relax, <laughs> you know? And I, I actually wrote a letter, like, you know, your teacher asks you, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I put, I wanted to be an Olympic champion. So I kind of, and I, of course, that's a huge dream, right? Like, this one in a million, that, that will actually happen. So that was my dream as a child, and it was just, you know, the thrill of my life to chase that dream and then to actually achieve it. And achieve it, she did. Sanya won gold medals in three separate Olympics. I wanted to know about her longevity. Very few athletes in our sport that are young, successful, that go on to have the success that we had, that I had. And I give a lot of credit to my family, like my dad who and my mom who sacrificed so much. My mom and dad actually ended up managing my career when I went pro. And my dad never missed a training session when I was in high school. Then he moved to Austin to be with me. And so I really think that support and helping me to stay focused and to constantly be in the moment and to set new goals for myself. I had a really good team. My coaches, I had a physical therapist, I had a sports psychologist. Like, you know, we did everything to help me to be able to be strong mentally and physically. That's amazing. So you had a really strong foundation and that mm -hmm. basically pivoted the direction that you were going to go in. Mm -hmm. So... How confident, now let's, let's talk about the 2012 Olympics yes. for a second. Mm -hmm. um, the 400 individual gold yes. that you got. Woo woo! <laughs> <laughs> That's your last Olympian gold too. Yeah. It's a huge deal. Mm -hmm. um, how confident were you going into that? Yeah, you know, I, I was supremely confident. Um, I had been undefeated that season. I trained lights out. I was training with the boys. 
and I'm talking about good boys. Jeremy Warner at the time was one of the best 400 meter runners in the world, and I had a really great team of athletes around me, and I was doing 2,000 sit-ups every day, and I mean, I mean, I was just doing everything right. So I knew I had done the work, but what was the most challenging part for me was kind of the mental component because in 2008, I was favored to win, was undefeated, and I finished with the bronze. And so for me, it was more of the mental hurdle. And I remember I worked with a sports psychologist who helped me tremendously. And I remember walking around the village and walking everywhere I went, I was like, I already won, I already won. Like, how would I act if I already won? And I just kept carrying myself like, I already did it. Like, I'm the champ already. Like, you don't have to feel the weight of the world because you already did it, you already did it. And I tricked myself the whole time until I did it. Like, <laughs> I just walked around. But you know, it was, it was like, it's so hard to describe that moment because in my dreams, I couldn't imagine what it would be like to run in front of 90,000 people. I had 30 people, 30 plus people travel from the States, like my family and my friends that were in the stadium with me. My husband, for the first time, he was in the NFL, and so most of the times he couldn't travel with me um, in August because they were in training camp. And so he was in the stands for the first time. I told him he was my lucky charm. He should have been there every time, but <laughs> well, I digress. Um, but yeah, it was just amazing. And it's like everything just kind of slows down and the final meters took so long, but I could see the finish line. I knew I was going to cross it first. And it was like 10 times, a thousand times better than my dreams. And I just, I, I, it's just hard to describe, but it was, it made everything worth it for me. Absolutely. And you know, I watched the race and you came from behind. I did. And you have everyone there cheering for you. Yeah. Take us through your mentality during the race. Sure. So the race, um, if you watch my, my, most of my other races, I usually come off the turn in front. And so what I wanted to do this time was, I just wanted to win. I didn't care about running fast, I didn't care about the time, I just needed to win this race. It was the only hole in my resume. I had won a world indoor title, world outdoor title, American record holder, everything except for Olympic individual gold medalist. So I kept telling myself, like, this is a race you just need to win. And so I remember being on the track and one of the things I could never prepare for that happened, and I remember my sports psychologist who came to London with me said, Sonia, something's gonna happen that's gonna knock you off your block, but you are prepared breathe and you're ready for this. And so I'm in lane five, my, my main competitor, Christina Rugu, was in lane seven, but she's from London, she's British. They call her name and I literally couldn't hear myself think. It was, I've never heard a crowd react that way. It was insane. And I thought, this is it. This is the moment that's gonna knock me off my block, but I'm ready for this. And so I, mind you, after lane seven, they only announced one more person is in your blocks, okay? So I got two seconds to get my mind right. And so um, I prepared myself, I took a deep breath and I got in the blocks. And in the 400 for the first 50 minutes, I don't look at anybody. I get out the blocks as hard as I can. I'm in, I, don't, I don't remember I'm at the Olympics. I'm just running as fast as I can. Then I transitioned to the next phase of my race and there's a Russian woman in the race, she was in lane six, who runs the first 200 really fast. And so I remember coach, actually she was behind me, she was in lane four. I remember my coach saying, look, the Russian's gonna probably run up on you and she might run by you. Don't panic, let her go, let her go. So I kind of bait her into doing that. She passes me on the backstretch and I'm still just in my race, breathing deeply. I go into the turn where I usually like to come off in front. So I usually position myself and run that part really fast but I held a little bit back because I was like, I want to finish as strong as I can. And so I come off the straightaway, I'm in third or fourth position, and I'm like, not today, okay? This is my victory, I have worked too hard for this. And I just gave it everything I had, and I never kept my eyes off the finish line. I looked at the finish line the entire time, and it seemed like it just was moving back and moving back, and finally I caught up with it. And yeah, it was just, it was just amazing. But I think the 400 is the only real thinker sprint race where you have to be in the moment, you're thinking the entire time. And so to be able to do that, stay in the moment, execute was like incredible. I have to ask, what does it take to finish faster when you're behind on the stretch run? 
What does it take mentally yeah. and, and in your body as well? Yeah, so we used to four Ps, push, pace, position, poise. And that's what it takes in the final 400 because mentally and physically you're breaking down. Like you can't sustain the speed any longer. You're, you're always going to run the last 100 the slowest. We all know that. It's the person who can maintain their form and stay poised throughout that. Your body telling you, girl, stop running. Why, what are we running from? Why are we doing this? Like you can stop, right? <laughs> Everything in you is telling you you shouldn't be running anymore. And so it's more about just keeping your poise mentally and physically. And that's something that I worked on a lot with Coach Hart was, when we got into that level of fatigue and you feel like you're, you're breaking down, how do I keep my form? How do I keep my focus? And so it's really just about that. And that's what we were able to accomplish on that day. What, what did it feel like that moment, the f- first moment when mm-hmm. you crossed the finish line? You know, it's funny because the so as I was finishing the race, I knew I had cleared everyone. But the crowd erupt because Christina Ruga was starting to come back. She was like in fifth and she was coming down. And even though I knew I won, I wasn't sure because they got so loud. So I'm like, did she knit me at the line? So I literally like closed my eyes and I squat down and I waited to see my name on the, I, want, I need to see my name on top of that, on top of the scoreboard. And when I saw that name, oh, the relief and the joy and everything, the emotions just ran through me. I had planned to dance and everything I was going to do. I didn't do any of that. I just kind of went crazy, (laughs) ran and saw my husband um, because I wanted to share that moment with him. My sister was beside me and my cousin, two of my favorite people in the world. And so, yeah, it was just amazing. But I didn't, it's funny because people were like, why didn't you celebrate right away? Because everyone knew I won, but I just had to be like, sure, sure, sure that I won. And then after that, I really celebrated. Would you say that was the highlight of your career? Oh yeah, oh yeah, by far. Um, it's every athlete's uh, dream to win the Olympics. Um, and I had done it in the relays and it's amazing to win with your team and it's very rewarding and gratifying and super cool. But in track and field, you train by yourself and you make a lot of individual sacrifice and it's a lot of discipline. So to be able to win it individually means so much. And so by far, that race is gonna be the most memorable race of my career. How does it propel you mm-hmm. today? Oh, every day. Um, For me, I feel like I can achieve anything I put my mind to because um, even though it's, and it also helps me to be patient too because it was a dream I had when I was nine and I didn't win the Olympics until I was 26, 27, I don't remember. Um, I gotta do some math and I'm not that good at that. So, (laughs) but it took me into my mid twenties to accomplish that goal. And so, you know, even today as I start new businesses or I set new goals for myself, I'm extremely hardworking, really focused, but I'm also very patient because I know it takes time to do anything great. So yeah, I mean, the foundation that I've built through track and field is the foundation I stand on for everything as being a mom, um, being patient with my son, but putting in the work and being there for him and loving on him now because I know it's going to pay off in the future. I just, at every angle of my life, it's, it's there as a seed that I just keep trying to water to make it blossom in different ways. With all that experience, what advice would you give young sprinters trying to be the next you right now? (laughs) You know, I would say it's never too early to start working hard. Like when I travel around and talk to young people or talk to their coaches, it's always like, well, next year I'm going to do this and next year I'm going to do that. And it's like, no, next year is now. You know, like I started doing a thousand sit-ups in high school um, and I, I started eating well and watching film and really devoting myself to the sport. And so I always tell young people, if you're really passionate about this thing, do it now. Start right now. Build those habits because once you start, once you build that kind of foundation, in 2012 when I wanted to up it to 2,000 abs, it, I'm not gonna say it was easy, but I already had that foundation of discipline. So I would just tell young athletes to start focusing on it now. Believe in themselves because anything is possible. How long does 2,000 abs take to do? <laughs> um, two hours. So it takes me a thou- an hour to do 1,000 sit-ups. Well, it's, and it's not, I hate saying I say sit-ups, but it's core work. So I did crunches and lower back stuff and med ball and physio ball, all kinds of core just to get a strong core. 
Um, and it was taking about an hour to do a thousand. And so I would just put the TV on, watch a show, and by the time you you know finish the show, you've done a thousand thousand core exercises, and it paid off. Sonia did it all right during her career, from thousands of sit-ups every day to winning gold medals at the Olympics. She fulfilled her potential, and she'd kept her run of success going after she retired. So, how does being a great athlete like yourself mm -hmm. help you in other parts of your life? Yeah, you know, um, I've all my dad always told me growing up that I never, you never want to be one-dimensional. So even though I was this great athlete, my dad was always like, try new things and explore. And so for me, I, I never felt like I was just an athlete. That was kind of one of the, one of the things that I loved. I loved the most for a very long time, but it wasn't who I was. And so, like I said, I kind of carry the lessons of sports into everything else that I do. And I love being an entrepreneur. My husband and I have started two businesses together now. And I love commentating. I commentate for NBC and I get to contribute to the sport of track and field in new ways. And, you know, I really do want to do more hosting and I love that kind of stuff. I love being creative. So, you know, I think that being an athlete for me gives me that fearlessness to try. Like my sister's always like, you're crazy. And I'm like, if, if this thing doesn't make my heart beat fast and if I don't feel like I could fall, I, you know, get embarrassed and I just don't feel like I'm alive. So, and I think I got that from being an athlete. It's like being on the edge of like, am I going to kill this thing or is it going to kill me? Yeah, no. And you, <laughs> you apply that to everything that yeah. you do. And so you also have a reality TV show. I did. You did. Yeah. I did. Yes. <laughs> what was that like? You know, reality TV was awesome. I really enjoyed it. There were some things that I wish I could do differently um, now that I've had the experience and we are not doing it anymore. But, you know, for me, it was really um, just one of those things that I wanted to do. I always wanted to try. And I, and I thought, like, how cool would it be for our family to have a show? And, you know, I do have a few regrets. I felt like we didn't. I felt like we were also kind of tight and like a little nervous about it that we weren't fully ourselves. So I feel like people didn't get to really see my family in the way that we pitched our family, but it was still a really good experience and I loved it and I enjoyed it and I would do it again with the right network and right production company, but it was a lot of fun. People have been watching Sonia, whether in the Olympics, commentating on sports or on her reality show. Sonia is aware that people are paying attention to her and she's proud to be a role model. Oh man, it's just the most important thing to me. And I, I even being here today and being able to interact with the next generation of of stars, I think it's so important to for them to have a tangible goal, for them to know that, you know, I literally started where they started and it is possible. Sonia doesn't just have advice about running faster. I wanted to know more about dealing with the pressure of being a successful female athlete. What are some internal and external pressures that you've had to undergo that you can maybe kind of almost save the next young sprinter mm -hmm. some time with? Um, you know, that, that's a loaded question. I think the first thing that comes to mind about external pressures is I think especially as a female athlete, a lot of times you feel this pressure to be perfect, to be beautiful, to say the right things and do all that stuff. And um, throughout my career, about midway through my professional career, I had a really awful autoimmune disease that I had really bad mouth ulcers, awful skin lesions, and it was just devastating. And um, there was a time where I just, I didn't feel beautiful. And I, you know, started wearing sleeves to cover my scars. And I just, you know, just felt this constant pressure to keep up, keep up. And then there just came one day where I was like, you know what, it is what it is, you know? And I was able to embrace that beauty really does come from within and it's not external. Um, and yes, I do love makeup, I love hair, I love all that stuff, but I know it doesn't define me because of that experience. So I think one of the aspects, there's many things, 
But I think when it comes to just our body image, um, you know, they call it self-confidence. And so it's important that you love on yourself, that you love who you are, you love how you, you, rep you represent yourself in the world. And I think if you can let go of that pressure when you're getting on the track or getting on the field or whatever, then you can just go out there and express yourself as the best athlete possible and, you know, leave that other pressure behind. Sonia has inspired other people to be their best, both on and off the track, and here too at Just Do It HQ. It's just really cool. This space is incredible. It's so inspiring. There's really cool messages on all the walls. The space just seems like of the perfect workout zone that you could dream up and then create it. Um, and so I think this is super dope. I wish I lived in LA. I would come out here all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so Sonia, what does Just Do It mean to you? You know, the Just Do It brand, um, I don't want to get emotional about it, but, um, you know, in Jamaica growing up, I was very fortunate. And um, there are lots of kids that weren't fortunate. And so a lot of kids would run barefoot. And when I reflect on my first time running, I'll never forget, I had a pair of, I've never told this story before, I had a pair of blue and yellow Nikes. And, um, you know, it, it for me was like, wow, like, these are so cool. And they almost embodied, like, or for me were like, what was possible? Like to put these on and to be able to fly, to be able to do what I love to do. And so, you know, coming from that to going to the University of Texas, that was a Nike school, um, to be able to run with Nike, in, in Nike my entire career. And then to be a part of the Nike family. Um, what I love about the brand is it's just so authentic. Um, when it comes to, when you go on campus, they say, you know, we listen to the voice of the athlete. And I can tell throughout my entire career, there were times where I was able to have input on what our uniforms should look like, how they should feel. I've been in so many projects with our spikes and like telling them this doesn't work and I don't like this. And seeing that actually change, you know, for me, it's like, wow, like when you think of Nike, it's like this huge brand, but here's just one person's voice that matters. And so for me, you know, Just Do It has been a huge part of my life and the Nike brand and to still be on board as a brand ambassador means the world to me. And you know, I just reflect on that time, and I know there's one little kid out there, maybe in Jamaica or in some part of the world, that's going to get a pair of sneakers and look at them and say, man, I, you know, this for me marks what's possible. And, um, and so I just am really proud to be associated with the brand. Yeah, no, and you're starting a new generation for those that are aspiring to be the next you. Amen to that. Sonia Richards-Ross, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This was awesome. Thank you, Denise. You're great. We learned a lot about racing today, what it takes to keep your form when everyone else is breaking down, and how in everyday life you can stay focused even when you have every reason to be distracted. I don't know about you, but I'm ready to get out and get a workout in here at Just Do It HQ. Who knows, maybe I'll start working my way up to a thousand sit-ups. <laughs> Just kidding. I'm going to define my own success a slightly less Olympic way. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every good review makes it easier for new listeners to find this show and hear from their favorite Nike athletes. Until next week, I'm Denise Jones, leaving you with one final note. How will you chase your crazy dreams? <laughs>